Two pastors and Tom walk into a bar, but this is no joke. It's the start of a conversation between three friends about culture, God, beer, and more. So pull up a chair, order a pint, and let's get started. rambling and without further ado welcome to part two as we discuss critical race theory okay all right i'm gonna press this on let's go into premise three uh he calls it liberation as moral duty so he sees this as the third premise of critical theory um our fundamental moral duty is freeing groups from oppression so again like quick summary uh, group identity supersedes, or well, group identity is inseparable, I should say accurately. Group identity is inseparable from individual identity. Uh, therefore, oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups through the exercise of hegemonic power. Therefore, premise three, liberation is our moral duty. Our fundamental moral duty is freeing groups from oppression. Crickets. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I mean, this is I'll, I'll admit, like, this is this is one where, like, as a pastor, I'm like, man, I like my fundamental moral duty is to, like, share Jesus with people, um, you know, and so and yeah. so it does become it does become a little bit of like, like, I believe that there are are larger realities at play here than just the history of America and in particular, in particular, the rate, the history of race in America. Um, But, and, and so like, I have a hard time saying it's the fundamental moral duty. Um, You know, that's maybe a qualifier. I'm not willing to add to that, but I do think like, if, if we look at our history as a country and we're like, Oh wow, there's some really messed up things that that took place and and i'm hesitant like i i have a hard time more and more being able to say like if you've taken if we've taken an honest look at at the history of race in america that we wouldn't want to see things change that i think when that happens certainly there is a moral duty to 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 work toward change now it's not a moral duty that I'm willing as as a Christian to equate with the the work of the gospel of Jesus rescuing sinners from sin and death, you know, and bringing them to eternal life. Um, like I can't make that jump, um, yeah. but like I do, I do think that it is something that's adjacent to to God's love of of people. Is that I would work toward. Like to adre- what, addressing to what and alleviating end? their suffering. I guess that's a question for me, right? To what end? Because l- l- we'll put this on a, on the poll question: yes or no? Liberation is fundamental to the gospel. Liberation from what? In, In what, what sense? Yeah, yeah. Just hold, hold on. Just bear with me. Liberation is fundamental to the gospel. I would say yes. <laughs> yes. Right. So the reason I say that, 
and mind you, I agree with everything you said, Marcus, and this is one point at which I myself depart from black liberation theology because uh, if I understand it correctly, black liberation theology, James Cone at all, is that economic liberation is fundamental to the gospel, which right. I would disagree with, with your qualifier, right? However, if you look throughout the narrative of salvation, God's plan of salvation, liberation is a constant and necessary thread. In particular, we link physical, economic, and personal liberation from slavery in Egypt as part of the larger gospel narrative, right? So the mm -hmm. gospel of Jesus Christ is inextricably tied to the liberation of Israel from physical slavery in Egypt. Yeah. We, we, we literally take so much of our, of our Christological language from the Paschal liberation that came from God's or the, the enslavement of God's people in Egypt, right? So like what the move that's typically made, which I think is a bit short-sighted and underhanded, if I can say it that way, is when we talk about liberation, we typically limit it to an individualized subjective liberation from sin and death, which is most certainly true, but it's not the end-all be-all, particularly if we look at the prophets of the Old Testament and even Jesus' own words when he opens the scroll of Isaiah in Nazareth in the synagogue and says, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives, right? To set the captives mm -hmm. free. That wasn't just some sort of like metaphorical feel-good, hey, everyone, you're entrapped to sin and subject to death. I'm gonna set you free. But I do think there is an actual sociological, economic, redemptive aspect to that, right? So like the move I would say that that is is a bit naive when it comes to American Christianity is to excise physical, economical, political liberation from the gospel entirely. But not exclusively. Yeah, I think you're right. Right. Yeah, like when yeah. it when it results in like an indifference to those those realities. I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's a tension we manage though, right? Cuz like I I has found this Instagram uh dude who's like about decolonizing Christianity, which like on the one hand, like half of his stuff, I was like, oh yeah, this is pretty cool. And then like the other half was like, uh, you know, when indigenous people read the book of Ruth, they really identify with Orpa uh, and, and really think that she's the heroine in the story for sticking with her people and her gods. And so we should read it that way. I'm like, no, that's the wrong way to read it. Um, and, and so there's, there's ways in which like, I think if we equate, if we, if we overly equate economic liberation and social liberation at the expense of of spiritual liberation to to frame it that way if we if we overdo that we we almost in some ways end up like serving mammon instead of jesus like but but to your point josh if we fail to just talk about purely spiritual liberation and fail to acknowledge the socioeconomic impact that is meant to coincide with life in the kingdom of god uh then we really neglect a massive part of the Bible uh, and and are pretty foolish that way. So it's like, and, and to me, I think that is one of the concerns with, you know, critical race theory, and, and we'll get to this in a little bit possibly, but is like, um, uh, brain farting. 
oh, is like, is this a substitute for the gospel? Because if it serves as a substitute for the gospel, then I have serious issues with it. If it serves as a way to help us understand how we might better live uh, gospel realities and kingdom living, then I'm all for it. Well, I think, Gabe, you bringing, I mean, kind of landing there of, of what do we mean by the gospel? Um, and like, I think this is where, um, and, and Gabe, the two of us have had this conversation repeatedly. Um, but like, I, I find this really, and this is me being a complete nerd, but like connects very deeply to like our atonement theology um, and yes. like how we how we understand what took place on the cross, like deeply connects with how we understand like the role of liberation um, and like is the is the cross about sort of paying the price of individual moral acts that are offenses against God? I guess it would be individual immoral acts that are offenses right. against right. God. Moral failings, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, or is the cross about humanity's liberation from the powers of the powers of evil that we have been enslaved to? Now I would I would argue the Lutheran answer to that is is it's both. Yes. Right? Like yeah. it's both and, right? And so when we I think see, that's the message the common laity gets most often. Right, but it's right. not going to have the same... Or... Yes, but it's not going to have... I, I would say, by and large, for LCMS Lutherans, because we're majority white, right? It's not going to have the added layer of the legacy of physical enslavement and the need for physical liberation. Mm -hmm. You know, and at least when it comes to not just black liberation theology, but a lot of... Um, I mean, I'll just, BIPOC churches and BIPOC theology, orthodox, I'm not talking like heterodox or unorthodox theology, but there's this like, okay, yes, enslavement to sin is part of our narrative, but it most, it, but it also necessarily results then in physical, political, socioeconomic liberation as well, right? Because well, God's people weren't liberated from slavery in Egypt to then become enslaved again or to become economically disadvantaged. The promise was, a land flowing with milk and honey power in some ways, right? And the ability to then implement their own hegemony. Well, and, and I think like, I mean, sin is not an abstract concept, right? It's, it's a lived reality. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so like when we see, when we see economic enslavement, right, that's a manifestation of enslavement to sin. Um, and, and so this is why I like, I think, and actually like, and again, I, I realize we're going kind of down the rabbit hole here, but like anytime you see on either side, someone of the like outright rejection of like, we cannot even dabble in critical race theory. It's usually someone whose only articulation of the gospel is like, well, you've, you've messed up and God forgives you as an individual. And anytime you see, again, on the on the converse, someone who's like critical theory is essential. Right. And and like these, you know, like. Like addressing addressing anti-racism is is basically equated with the gospel. Um, 
usually it's someone who actually rejects like some form of substitutionary atonement right um where yeah. it's only about the powers of evil yeah and i think it's maintaining that both and of like yeah. hey like you as an individual are a sinner who has committed offenses against god but also like we are enslaved to powers of evil and it's not just yeah. in the abstract sense but like very real powers of evil that are present in our world that Jesus has come to rescue us from those two. Yeah. Exactly yeah. why our eschatology is so important. Creator rescues the creature, but creator also will rescue the entire creation. Yeah. So yeah. in the last 30 seconds, we've used the word eschatology. And what did you use? Substitutionary atonement. Um, I did. I did float that in there. Yes. Yeah. Dej is literally the only person who is still listening to us at this point. <laughs> Could have so. said vicarious atonement, which sounds even Ooh, cool. Vicarious so satisfaction. Yes. Oh, there it is. Yes. There it is. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, Chairman Marcus. Premise number four. Lived experience is more important than objective evidence in understanding oppression. Lived experience is more important than objective evidence in understanding oppression. Listen to Anderson and Collins. The idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking, one that we will challenge throughout this book. Wait, so it's saying what what I live yeah. is, is what to, to objective fact? is is more important is yeah is more important than objective evidence so your lived experience is more important than objective evidence in understanding oppression what happens when they intersect really see this is and and so of, i would think it'd be his, isn't his... that opposite for the white person no i think this is all intersectional we'll get to that next okay oh okay well so this is can, can, i changed my verb then I think these all coincide and run parallel. I think they run parallel. Okay. So I'll say this is an area where like, I think he, I feel like he's drawing a little bit of a false dichotomy here because like I've, and, and again, to say that this is a basic premise of critical race theory, that feels like a falsehood to me. Like it is, it is the most extreme end of things to say like, no, objective facts don't matter. History doesn't matter. Examination of that doesn't matter. All that matters is lived experience. I don't encounter a lot of people saying that. Like Wait. you, there are examples, there, there may be examples like the one that he pointed out, like, but I don't think the, the bulk of, of literature in the critical race theory yeah, kind of on the, on the contrary, is, it's is really arguing that. Yeah, on the contrary, it's lived experience corroborates historical data or historical so, experience. So to I, play I would say, advocate, though, to that, Marcus, like he gives an example here, although not of race, which is notable. Uh, but he says, you know, like in abortion conversations, you know, there's like T-shirts that say like uh, it's hold on. It's like, let me be sure I get it right. Um, no uterus, no opinion, right? So as it relates to, to abortion, there's this argument that says like, well, you're not a woman, so you shouldn't be allowed to talk about this. And so his argument, I think, you know, if we can then apply that to race would be to say like, listen, you haven't lived the experience of a black person, so you don't have a right to talk about race at all. Which 
which even if you're using objective facts no no no. yeah and so the the one the one caveat that i'll that i'll add to that is and this is something that my compatriot uh sarah and i talk about regularly in our own anti-racism trainings is that we're all affected by racism white black indigenous latinx like whatever right like all of us latino Latina, Latino, Latinx. All of us are affected by racism. So me as a white person, as a white male, a white cisgender male specifically, right? Like I have been ingratiated or like with a narrative that presupposes certain things, that positions me in certain ways, that actually instills certain values and or behaviors or attitudes within my enculturation as a white cisgender male in America, right? Which we might also call your lived experience. My lived experience. And not all of those are good. Some of those negatively affect my own ethos, my own mind, my own life, right? In a different way than say a black female or or an indigenous man, right? But it still does have a traumatic effect. And so that's one thing that we tend to highlight is to say like, this is universal to the lived American experience. And so therefore there are negative effects to all of these things that we all have. It's baggage we all carry. It's the groundwater we're all suffering from, right? And then so, does that lived experience supersede objectivity? No, in, but this but this is but see, this is where the argument tends to, 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 to be denigrated, right? Like my lived experiences as a white dude in America would say racism doesn't exist. We, we're, we're, past, we're post-racist. We're, post, we're a post-racial country. Whereas the lived experiences of, of people of color in this country would say we most certainly are not, right? So like my lived experience would dictate to me that we've moved beyond the objective realities and the objective historical fact. The lived experiences of people of color would say that what we need to do is have a reconciliation of those two lived experiences and say, let's take our lived experiences. Let's then like juxtapose them to historical data, like historical fact or current data when it comes to economics, politics, whatever. Right. And then let's reconcile the books, so to speak. Yeah, that's that's I mean, overwhelmingly like a look at at things that we would term objective, you know, in terms of of historical realities, present data, like that to me has been more convincing of the reality of the lived experience of blacks in America than anything that anything else that I could argue. Um, And so, again, it just feels weird to me that we would draw this sort of like this dichotomy between objectivity and lived experience when it's like if you want to talk both of those things like i feel like overwhelmingly the evidence is toward the systemic oppression of blacks in america yeah okay so real quick and not to get in the theological weeds we have a categorical this is framework. something you say when you go when you literally dive headlong into the i'm not weeds. going to dive headlong into the weeds i'm going to make this very short and sweet we literally have a categorical fra- a categorical framework for this within christian orthodoxy christ objectively in his death and resurrection objectively saved the whole world it becomes subjectively true in the lived experience of faith right like this is a right. legitimate 
theological and doctrinal framework that we have and operate by, which maintains the tension of an objective reality and a lived experience of that objective reality and its outcomes. Yeah. 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 Objective justification, subjective justification. Uh, but the problem is you forgot I'm a Calvinist, tulip Calvinist. So he didn't actually die for this <laughs> the whole world. Uh, I just completely ignored John 360. Unbelievable. So, Unbelievable. At any rate, see, we offend everyone. Um, all right. Let's, so I'm going to do five and six because five kind of went with four. I probably should have done it then. But premise five is uh, oppressor groups hide their oppression under the guise of objectivity. Um, and again, I, I agree with Marcus. I think he kind of sets up a false dichotomy here. And I think that's been our conversation on this anyways, that it's like, no, you, you can still like recognize lived experience in line with objective reality um, in as much as any of us understand objective reality, which I think is a whole nother conversation, but moving along, uh, premise six is the final one. And then we'll, we'll get to some stuff to, to wrap us up here. But the final premise is this, uh, intersectionality, Josh's best friend, uh, individuals at the intersection of different oppressed groups experience oppression in a unique way. Uh, here's a quote from the authors of an influential book on critical race theory. Imagine a black woman who may be a single working mother. She experiences potentially not only multiple forms of oppression, but ones unique to her and others like her. Yep. Right. What's the big deal again? Well, he's just saying that's one of the premises. Like, you would agree with that? Right. I, I okay. would. I would. It, I mean, to, to a certain extent, right? Because you, you're right. Like, and... In my, once again, I'm only speaking from conversations I've had with people in these types of communities. Like there is, there are different levels and experiences of oppression between black men and black women, even within the black community, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. I myself as a, a white dude would ha have personally and professionally leveraged the black female experience of single mother or this this narrative i would even say myth of like perpetuated single motherhood uh in poverty right to my advantage so i do think that there are levels of and by levels i mean like compounded interest so to speak on lived experiences that that is that is real and is valid uh to a certain degree so this is a thing that as we've looked at all these premises, I feel like a lot of these are like, yep, I can get on board with that. Even if I was really on one side or the other, like we're making arguments, I feel like that are, that are easy to make. But then when it, when the rubber hits the road is when, is when I feel like people start pushing back. Right. Yeah. So like where I've heard, critical race theory come up in the last six months in particular i don't know if it's because it's what what's on my youtube feed what's on my google feed whatever but i see a lot of politicians of trump of of people saying i will not have this critical race theory being taught in my schools we talked about it earlier like i just teach history you know versus critical race history like what's the difference yeah. right yeah and that's that pretended guise of objectivity. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think about like, you know, 
going back to my schooling of what we learned about in school, you know, we talked about in our last episode of Thanksgiving of like Thanksgiving maybe wasn't all turkey and, and mashed potatoes between English settlers and and Native Americans. Probably wasn't probably wasn't that, right? And so now moving through our history and understanding that it wasn't as good as we think it was, that's where people really start pushing back saying, no, 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 America is the greatest country in all the land ever, ever, ever. So I and, think, and, yeah. and to me, critical race theory is like, well, let's pump the brakes just a minute. It wasn't always as good. But I will say intersectionality and like critical intersectional, I don't even know what they call themselves. Intersectionality is slightly different from the main line of critical race theory because it, it takes on a few different flavors and uh, a handful of different emphases, if I can say it that way. So, like, yes, I think there is intersectionality between, say, gender and race when it comes to oppressed groups. But intersectionality in and of itself isn't necessarily tied to um, or even undergirded by critical race theory. So can I – I'm going to say this. I, I think one of the – the struggles like why people react to this right so like the four of us can sit here and we can kind of be like yeah like america like you know as we noted earlier like there, there are some good things like to use josh's industrial revolution example like there are good things that happened as a result of the industrial revolution but also you know kids got their fingers chopped off like not good right so like and we can recognize that in american history in general and be like hey we have had you know amazing economic prosperity in this country more than ever before seen in the world uh, America has oftentimes been a force for good. And so like we can recognize those things and then also recognize like, oh my gosh, but like we did terrible things to black people, to indigenous people and the ramifications of that still exist today. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to recognize that those lived experiences are different. Right? So, so we can all kind of sit here and say that. I think one of the struggles that, that people come into um, is, is what we call like, are you guys familiar with the, the Overton window? Nope. No. Okay. So the, the Overton window, it's, it's, um, it's the range of, of like policies that are politically acceptable to the mainstream population at a given, given time. It's also known kind of as like the window of discourse, right? So there's at a given time, like, so during like, say the red scare, like, man, you talk about communism at all. Like that's outside the Overton window. Like you just, you cannot have any, any thoughts that are left-leaning at all in the midst of, you know, the red scare. Uh, and so I think what some people get concerned about in this conversation to kind of play devil's advocate for them is that this expands the Overton window to, and this is where, you know, I mean, we joke around about it, but this is where those like, quote unquote, neo-Marxist things come up is people see this as an expansion of the opportunity for Marxism to, to make its role because, because it ends up being a critique of all sorts of things that are American, including liberal democracy and capitalism. And people say, oh man, if you're going to start talking oppressor and oppressed, if you're going to start talking about 
how this group of people experiences life differently than we do, as opposed to looking at people as individuals, well, then all of a sudden you're talking bourgeoisie and proletariat, and we're going to have a Marxist revolution. Now, I think that's an extreme way to go with it, but I do see how they're saying the Overton window is getting too big because of this conversation. And that's why I think people like Trump or whoever else are, are saying, well, I may be being too charitable to him, but, but why people like him um, are saying like, whoa, whoa, let's pump the brakes. Let's keep America the good guy here because otherwise we're going to have a revolution. Well, and I think ultimately... I was having this conversation with a buddy of mine the other day about some friends of ours who who are very, very strongly Republican and we we don't understand and we, we have conversations with them. And at the end of the day, it always comes down to money. Always, mm-hmm. always, always. And this idea of like, if you start expanding this window, it starts nibbling at at, at the power structure that that white white America has. And if we start taking that, it, it, for those of us who stand to lose from that, that gets pretty scary. But at the end of the day, it always is about power and money, right? But would it, like, so what if the, the concern, you're right. I mean, so money is the thing, but and like, and money, we can kind of be like, shame on them for money, but we all are happy to have money and live in houses too, right? So, so the critique is like, is like, well, shoot, if this actually does end up like upending values that are that seem to be good for, or, or at least are potentially good for a lot of people. Let's like nip this in the bud. So yeah. I wonder, I'll go ahead, Marcus. Well, no, Chair, I just, chairman, I wonder, I'm sorry. My apologies. Oh, <laughs> oh, high and holy Jeez. one chairman Marcus, my fault. Not I mean, Josh, I mean, I guess. think like, I think like, I mean, as a pastor, like what I want more than anything for, for people, uh, is that they would be able to engage with a broad variety of ideas critically. Um, and and so like with something like critical theory is like it would be, I guess, ultimately a question of, of how do individuals engage with this framework and this philosophy with sort of a critical lens. Um, and so like I'm willing to admit like there are some strengths of of this framework and there are some weaknesses of it um and and so i wonder if like maybe maybe like that's worth kind of unpacking of of as as we just sort of look at this like just very broadly speaking what are what are the strengths of critical theory what are maybe some of the limits or the weaknesses of of critical theory um, and, and how might that be a beneficial way of, of kind of looking at this and, and unpacking it? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I might be the most read to answer that question. I've read a book or two, Gabe, because I Whoa, always, always want to make you happy. That's really my ultimate goal in life is just to make you proud. It's like you're the dad in the divorce that left and my entire life is dictated by like trying by to win you back. Yeah, childhood trauma. <clears throat> That's I'm it. really That's proud it. of you for reading this. <clears throat> but but I will say this: this is a really important question, and I think it's one that personally I've wrestled with. Right? Is like I've read a lot in this specific area, and for me, there is significant tension when it comes to the theology, when it comes to the socioeconomics, or even the politics or the history. There are so many inconsistencies that I'm like, 
this is I, I don't understand how we can't just simply like acknowledge these and begin to reincorporate them or actually initially incorporate them into uh, the, the history of who we are as a people in America, right? Or the West. But there are significant, in my opinion, significant either fallacies or just simply like half-truths or untruths from a theological perspective, right? They're extrapolations from lived experience, from historical fact, from the the last you know few hundred years of culturalization or socialization whatever right that are just simply inconsistent with the the message of the gospel and the story of scripture and so for me that's where we have to be to your point authentically critical or at least it filled with integrity when we want to in, 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 come into this conversation we need to be filled with integrity when it comes to a historical or sociopolitical perspective and say there are some things that are broken and they're an affect of sin and need to be fixed or repaired. Most certainly lamented, right? But at the same time, there are also some things that have arisen that we can't allow to infiltrate orthodox theology to the point where we abandon Christ, the message of the cross, or God's entire history of salvific work according to the old and new testaments the hebrew scriptures you know the the gospels and the letters and that kind of thing but what i find is fewer and fewer people willing to sit in that tension and say it can be both and it has to be this and that instead of either or mm -hmm. do that's and and i think that goes back to marcus Sorry, Chairman Marcus, you talked about Please. what are the weaknesses of, of, of critical race theory. I had brought it up a little earlier, but it 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 is that is that it, it almost becomes a, a us versus them. There are there are two sides. You're on one or the other, and to you to your point, Josh, that that, that it's way more complicated than, than that. We can use intersectionality. We can use whatever big fancy words we want, but like it's it's messy and and it involves us digging into the weeds a little bit acknowledging some things that happened that were bad understanding where it's still impacting us and continuing to to move hopefully move forward in in, in the right direction so i think this will like tie in nicely with maybe where we should start to land the plane here is like in like the second part of his his blog entry, um, Neil Shenvey, his major critique, and again, I, I think he really does a fair job. I encourage everyone to check his stuff out. Neil Shenvey is his name. Just Google it. You can find his website. Uh, at any rate, his next thing he does, though, is he says like Christianity and critical theory are competing worldviews. So, so he sees critical theory as a holistic worldview, a holistic narrative about the nature of reality. And, and so he gives like a really, it's a very simple graph. I mean, and we could spend time critiquing that, but that's not really the point of his graph, I don't think, is like, you know, as Christians, we'd say, hey, creation, you know, God makes us, he makes us in his image, blah, blah, blah. Uh, fall, we fall into sin, redemption, restoration. Okay, so like, let's just say that's a four-part overarching worldview of Christianity. He would then say critical theory has no creation aspect to it. 
but then it goes to oppression is the fall equivalent. So patriarchy, white supremacy, heteronormativity, toxic masculinity, capitalism, ageism, ableism, cisgenderism. Uh, and then the redemption uh, portion of that would be activism, protest, resist, education, awareness. And then the restoration aspect of that is liberation, equality, power reversal, justice, and diversity. Uh, and he sees that as a competing worldview with the Christian worldview. Mm. Why, why is that competing when you just basically drew the same arc? I mean, I would, I, I think, I would say it could be a competing worldview. I don't well, think it's necessarily, right? Because, like if you, like, because we want it to be, or? Well, I mean, so I, I mean, I think it's, I think there's some, maybe, I think maybe both sides of the argument bear some responsibility. I think, I think those who are, ardent subscribers to the critical theory idea um, perhaps do make it a totalizing narrative that does become the primary lens through which which one views the world. But I also think that sometimes Christians are guilty of, of again, just kind of making things like the fall this abstract concept and not a very real reality that impacts the lives of individuals every single day, right? And so, so the fall, like, that's, like, why would we be surprised that the fall would manifest itself in the form of oppression in our world? And why would protest not be perhaps a reasonable response to the redemption that has come to us in Jesus? Um, and I think like, to me, like liberation, like that's, what's going to happen when God recreates the heavens and the earth is we're going to be liberated from enslavement to sin and death. Um, and so I don't think that these are necessarily, um, competing ideas, but I think frequently by both sides, yeah. right. Both the, the ardent rejector and the ardent subscriber that these become competing narratives because they've made things so totalizing that they can't actually be like, "Ah, there's maybe some room for harmony here. Not just totalizing, but an unwillingness to, to identify with that, which is different from the current lived experience. So like lament is the language of the oppressed, right? Lament isn't just being like, oh, things suck. I hope something changes. But like the biblical understanding of lament is an appeal to God to to actually engage with his creation and adjust, disrupt, change something, right? To like actually intervene. And so for me, this is where we can say from a a biblically faithful perspective, either from the position of oppressor or oppressed, to say that something is not quite right. So let's lament to God and say, please intervene either through me, through our church body, through something, right, to begin to disrupt what is broken from a sinful perspective and begin to repair what has been wronged and to make things right, to continue to make things new. This is entirely faithful. It's totally biblical, but yet it's a practice that we just tend to either ignore or not fully embrace. When it comes to this this conversation. Lament is entirely faithful. Lament is entirely biblical. 
Is that what you're saying, Josh? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Yeah, right. Okay. I just want to be sure. Yeah. Well, I, so, and I, I think I'm, I like, I'm with you guys. I do think, and I, I maybe want to, I don't know, echo what Marcus was saying. Like, there are, and, and for a good number of people, and again, I think this is where some people get cons- concerned, is for a good number of people, this is a totalizing worldview. Like, I mean, I don't know how many, but, but like, I know for sure in my studies in philosophy, like, many of like the students I studied with, many of my professors, like this is their fundamental disposition of how they go through the world. Um, you know, and I know this year for a fact, Marx and I have lost members at our church who've walked away from the faith because they've said, this is actually the better way to view the world. Hmm. So, so there is a way in which this actually does happen and is actually, I think a real threat to the gospel, but conversely to everyone's point so far to just be like, there's no way this is compatible at all with the biblical narrative. There's no way this is compatible with, with Christianity is really dumb and a foolish way um, to, to approach it and to not recognize like to what Josh has been saying, like, like this like lines up with a lot of the language of scripture. It lines up with a lot of the way we understand how the gospel functions. And so it's, you know, to me, I see it as, you know, this is language I, I use a lot, but it's like you, you, you chew the meat and you spit out the bones and it's like, figuring out how to do that well and help people do that well. So they're not bought into it as their totalizing worldview, but they don't reject it just because it's not, I don't know, evangelical Christianity's no, uh, modus operandi. Well, we seem to do that as Christians all the time. If it's not word for word out of scripture, then it must be, it must be born of Satan and we have, we can have nothing to do with it versus maybe opening up our eyes to saying, this is maybe born of God. And, and that this is maybe God working in, in our culture, in our society through this. And and it is compatible in a lot of ways. Yeah. But then to be clear on those places where it's not right. Cause that, that is the thing is like, I don't, I am like just super hesitant to like wholeheartedly embrace any worldly philosophy or ideology. I mean, like Paul tells us not to be susceptible to the philosophies of the world, uh, but he also quotes the prophets of, excuse me, the poets of the Roman or of the Greeks. Like, so, so like there's a way in which we engage with the philosophies of the world and there's a way in which we have to call them out on their stuff um, and not be sold out to them, but be sold out to Jesus. So as, as the chairman, I'd like to weigh in here. Um, (laughs) So I actually, um, I came, I came impeccably prepared. Um, and so I'd like to toss out, I, I kind of have like what I would say, like, I think just some basic strengths and weaknesses of critical theory for folks who are maybe interacting with this on some level, whether that's like your kids are hearing it at school and you're like, I don't know how to deal with this or you're at it in a university setting and you're like, I'm trying to make sense of this or on whatever level you're interacting with it. Um, so let me just kind of toss out a couple strengths that I see in the, in the idea. And then also maybe a few weaknesses that, that I think we've touched on just kind of summarize a little bit of, of where we've been so far. Um, so just name like first that I think like one of the strengths is it invites us to deal with, systemic issues and not merely personal attitudes. Um, and, and Josh, I know this is a huge thing for uh, some of the stuff that, that you guys do with, with ARC is that like, like racism is not simply like, I think black people are 
less human, right? But it's like these notions that are baked into our system um, that, that normalizes certain things and abnormalizes other things. Um, second, I would say is that it recognize, it actually recognizes weirdly the power of formation, right? Which actually is a huge thing for the church is we believe that Christian practices, whether that be worship, prayer, other spiritual disciplines like fasting, um, you know, you name it. Uh, like, I think critical theory actually recognizes the way that like the things that we practice culturally actually shape the way that we see the world, right? And and so it's actually seeing like, yeah, we've we've assumed certain norms because of cultural practices that we live every single day and maybe don't even think about. And then I also think, and then kind of my third strength here is, is particularly for the Christian, it, it actually makes the effects of sin tangible. Um, so like I kind of said before, like too often we make, we make, or we speak of, of sin or the powers of evil as like abstract concepts um, and critical theory. I think when it's rightly applied, um, it can kind of help us name some of the ways that sin, evil, and oppression actually manifest itself in our world. Uh, again, not just through individual activity, uh, but through the, the things that we're subject to uh, on a daily basis. I'm going to stop there with my strengths. Any reactions to, to those things so far? I think that's good, man. Bring us home with the weaknesses. All right. All right. Um, so weaknesses that, that I guess I've identified is, um, is I do think critical theory is it's primarily deconstructive, um, right? So it examines the things that we've inherited and criticizes them, but it really offers very little in the way of, of reconstruction, right? And so we can maybe say like, here's why that's wrong. Here's why that's oppressive. But like, what are we going to build as an alternative I'm not mm -hmm. sure critical theory offers us a lot in that department, you know, that, that we have to like, we can say like, oh, this is garbage, but like we have to figure out something to do instead and, and critique only takes us so far. Um, yep. and, and so I think like we do have to recognize, like we have to bring something to the table in terms of what is the more just society that we're trying to construct um, and, and I think this is incredibly important for, for the church is like, like, what do we actually want in place of, of the things that we've inherited? And what are the ways to get there so that, you know, and this is a common line, but what are the ways to get there so that the oppressed doesn't become the new oppressor, right? I mean, like that's right, right. Absolutely. history in a lot of ways. Right. Well, and I, I, and I think that's a fair <clears throat> concern that, that if all we're talking about is what oppressors have done, what oppressors have done, which is oftentimes legitimate like we we do have to seek to be intentional about creating a world that's not just turning the tables where now the oppressor becomes the oppressed right but the only thing i would add to that is that by and large in conversations i've had in the circles that i've been listening to and interacting with there is a very ardent um sentiment that says there is in no way the desire to flip the tables and to reverse the oppressor oppressed system. I mean, quite specifically that 
black people in America would become the oppressor, right? The desire is just for equality and equity. An equal standing, an equitable footprint, just access to the same opportunities at the same level to the same degree, right? So like, it's not, and, and this is, I think, really important, not just for our listeners, but the broader community of, of particularly white folks to hear. There is very little, if any, desire from the black indigenous community to become an oppressive system or to take on the role of oppressor. It's simply to say, let's just work towards a level playing field in which wealth, privilege, access are truly like equal and equitable across the board. I w is this going to throw a wrench in this? I don't know, Tom. Is it? Early American <laughs> colonies just wanted equal representation, just wanted to be on equal footing with England and all that. No taxation without representation. And then they morphed into oppressors of everybody else. I'm not disputing your claim. I'm not, I, I, I'm just. Well, Tom, I mean, I wouldn't, it, wouldn't that be, I mean, I would say that's something that we could say, like, again, I, I think to be, to be fair and to be holistic in our examination of history is we can't just, we can't villainize every single thing that the, that the colonists did. Right. And the notion, the, the idea of like, oh, like taxation requires representation. Like, oh, that's that seems like a good idea. That's that's a, an idea that nope. should move us toward equity. Absolutely. And, I'm just I'm just echo, echoing like maybe Gabe, you said it that like history is full of examples of oppressees becoming oppressors afterwards. The bully who finally grows up and becomes bigger becomes the bully later you know like yeah. and I, and like gosh i'm not I'm, I'm, i don't know i'm not trying to make the point i'm just throwing it out there no no I mean, no but i would t tom quite honestly um i would say that the american colonization was just an extension of european colonization as a whole so it wasn't a reversal it wasn't like an adaptation or even a progression it was simply an extension of a period of human history in which European, I mean, by like British, French, Portuguese, Spanish, um, we're familiar with Europe, Josh. What? <laughs> Didn't even hear you. I, was I said, Ooh. we're familiar with Europe, Josh. Germany. Okay, fine. G Germany. Right. Well, no, Italy Germany didn't really colonize, but Norway on a global scale. Norway. Get Denmark. out of here. Stop it. Okay. Get out of here. All I'm saying is, America was. What about the Irish? Okay. Well, you know what? I am Latvia. so. Latvia. You know. Liechtenstein. <laughs> Fine. Luxembourg. Do there we keep... go. Okay. We've... Vatican City. Austria, uh, Switzerland, oh Italy. Do you have any Monaco. other weaknesses, Mar Marcus? I'm not even going to respond to this. Yeah, dude. Do you hey, have any other go, okay. Finish this up with your weaknesses. All right. Um. So I do think at times, and and again, I don't know if this is a weakness of of the theory itself, but I feel like sometimes the practitioners lack consistency in terms of what they're willing to critique. I take personal right? So often, 
oftentimes, um, <laughs> right. So for just kind of as an example, like oftentimes we, we see, um, and, and perhaps rightly a, a critique of the ways in which Western liberalism has brought about oppressive systems. Um, right. And, and again, I, I think an examination of, of history should help us see like, yeah, that has happened. But if we're going to critique Western liberalism, like we should also critique Marxism as well, right? And, and the ways that Marxism has also oppressed people. Now, it maybe hasn't been what's oppressed people in the West largely, but that's not to say that it hasn't oppressed people, right? Like Can today, I... as, we're, as we're talking right now, there are more Muslims in concentration <laughs> camps in communist China than there were Jews in concentration camps in Nazi Germany, right? Yeah. And so to just it, sort of give Marxism a pass, yeah. like, seems really intellectually dishonest. I also want to add to it, and again, in being critical of Western liberalism, like, there's certainly a place to do that and to recognize that. But similarly, to also not recognize some of the strengths of it and to actually see it as a potential way of being liberating, um, that it hasn't been, and to critique it for that, but to, to also not acknowledge some of the benefits of it that have been for all people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, I think, I think a willingness to, to, to critique not just the things we want to critique, but, but to apply our critiques honestly and be consistent in the way that we do so so um last thing that i'll, I'll toss out um it, and we've we've kind of already touched on that is is that i do think i i see from time to time and this is maybe most concerning for for the church is is that for a lot of people it has become a totalizing narrative um and and i do think we need to recognize like this maybe isn't a flaw I, it, I don't know, maybe it is or isn't a flaw of, of CRT. Um, but like, this is ultimately, it's just another form of fundamentalism. Um, and when this happens, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to import ideas onto the Bible that aren't there, or we're going to abandon it altogether, right? And so just yep. to be able to recognize when that happens. Um, but I think like we can engage with that without the assumption that it has to be a totalizing narrative, right? Christians don't engage with the field of science, assuming that we must view the world in strictly materialist terms, right? Um, we yep. don't make our, our judgments on science based on Richard Dawkins, yep. right? We, that old you know, curmudgeon. And, right. Mm. But like, but again, we can, we can engage with fields of thought that, that taken to its extreme conclusions, maybe conflict with Christianity, but that doesn't mean to say it has nothing to offer in terms of the way that we sort of apply our worldview um, in in our present context. Ken Ham, the end all be all. Oh. I will follow none other. I will. Rep I can't oh. even get through that without. I can't even get through that without laughing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm we'll sorry. follow him into the mists of Avalon. I'll follow him into the dark. I'm going to go uh, with him into the ark. That recreation. Oh. I'm about to float out this flood. Tell you what. And I will follow you I will into follow the ark. This is what I was talking about in my intro. Um, 
we got we, we got i think we gotta be done right yeah let's call good all right um 612-208-6258 this has literally been two episodes uh you'll know that by the way that they're edited edited and released but We'd love to get your reaction to Chairman Marcus and his Maoist, communist, uh, wow. sadistic, wow. and completely undermining philosophies, or to why do you hate apple pie? Why do you, I mean you hate apple pie, American flags, and all America, Chairman Marcus? Um, you all know me. I just hate the assumption that all that apple pie is better than all other pies. I mean, it is really delicious. Uh, Tom, is it the best pie? No, it's not, but that's for another day. Anyway, we'd love to hear from you, uh, particularly with this conversation. So once again, 612-208-6258. Text us your questions. Dej, we expect to hear from you. If we don't, we're going to assume that you're injured, maimed, or dead like any other child in the Industrial Revolution. And we will be <laughs> contacting all of your known relatives to ensure your safety. But otherwise... Uh, we had some fun. Thank you guys for such an elongated reporting that we get to split this into two full episodes to just once again undergird our laziness in the fact that now we don't have to record for another two months uh, to produce be great. regular content. So I guess we're winning in 2021. We've done it. Everything's coming up PGP in 2021. <laughs> the huge. <laughs> We're all in trouble. <laughs>